when you pastor a church for nearly nine years, there are a lot of things that you see and walk through and listen to and participate in. One of those is suffering. In nine years, I've watched a lot of good people suffer. Some have suffered with cancer. Some have suffered with a husband or a wife leaving them and going somewhere else. Some have suffered with death in their families. I've stood and watched people who have watched a lifetime of treasures and memories be flooded away. Suffering is not something that we are unfamiliar with. All of us know what it's like to suffer. You are either in the midst of some suffering or you have experienced suffering in the past or you know someone who is presently suffering. And there are people in our lives that when they hurt, we hurt. There are all kinds of suffering. Sometimes we limit suffering to physical, but there is emotional suffering that takes place and anguish and anxiety and fear and pain and guilt. There are the sufferings that come when a child that you've tried to raise to love God says, I'm not interested in the things of the church. I'm not interested in the things of God. There's a suffering that comes when you've been a loyal employee and all of a sudden the company says, we don't need you anymore. Some of us, sometimes that affects us at the point of our feeling of self-worth. There's a suffering that comes just from living life and rubbing shoulders with other people who are suffering. We're almost dulled to it by watching the news and listening to the reports of what's going on in our world. We, we've almost become immune to it that we just don't even feel sometimes for people who are suffering. I doubt if very many of us paused and prayed for the families of the people who were killed in the bombings in Northern Ireland. We just have become indifferent. And yet there's a world out there that is crying out and saying, we're hurting. We don't know if we can go on. We don't know if God loves us, and we don't know if God cares about what we're going through. We don't know if God has an answer. There are all kinds of suffering, and no one message can hit any of those particular kinds of suffering. While you may hit one, you may not hit others. But I want us to look at the life of a great man, the Apostle Paul, a man that we look up to and admire because of the greatness of God in his life and his usefulness to the kingdom, what he did to expand the gospel in a missionary effort to the Gentiles, how he has touched our lives through his writing, how he has ministered to us, and yet he was a man who suffered immensely. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about a revelation and an experience that he had in being caught up into the third heaven. And I want to begin reading in verse 7. 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I watched a fascinating interview last night with former President George Bush talking about his life and his presidency and the events of his life. And even though I was somewhat familiar with him, I was not familiar with the fact that they had lost a daughter at a very young age. She was a small child when she died of leukemia. And David Frost was conducting the interview and he said to him, how did you handle that, the losing of your daughter? And former President Bush says, you have to have faith that God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. You see, you and I all have a testimony of suffering, of adversity. And if you talk to someone long enough, and if you get to know them, you will find that underneath the facade and the the surface of cliche answers to questions, there are people who have a deep hurt. I watched the former president last night as he only cried on two occasions. He cried when he shared about his dad crying when he told him he was going into the service. And he cried when he talked about the woman outside his office who was holding up the sign that said, don't send my children home dead when he was giving the order to go to the Gulf War. All of us have pains that we hide. Each one of us has feelings and problems and hurts that we kind of cover up. We hide behind our little sayings and our, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Everything's wonderful, super, you know, good to see you. How are you? And not only do we not know, but sometimes we don't care that we are walking in the midst of suffering people. And in our busyness to get to our classes and get to worship and to go to all the things we have to do, we need to pause and remember that somebody that you're walking by is not having a good day. If we were to be real honest this morning, we would have to admit that on every pew in this church, there's somebody with a heart that's breaking. There's somebody that has a moment that they look back on that they've not been able to overcome. There's someone that's going through something right now that they think maybe life's never going to get any better than it is right now. Maybe my best days are behind me. Maybe happiness is going to elude me. And so all of us deal with these events and these moments in our life. Paul was no different. He was a man blessed by God and used by God and empowered by God, but he was going through a time of suffering. Now, when you face these times, 
it will do one of two things to you. It will either build up your faith or Satan will use it to bust up your faith. Either God will have the opportunity to build you up in faith with him or Satan will get a foothold in your life and make you mad at God and angry about life and it'll bust up your faith in God and you'll become bitter instead of seeing God in the midst of it and seeing what Paul saw in the midst of his suffering. Now when people are suffering, there are five predictable responses. This is a brief lesson in pastoral care. We are notorious when we go to visit people who are suffering with trying to say too much. We walk in a hospital room and we feel like we've got to play surrogate doctor. And we have to give our wisdom at the bedside. You know, what they may need is you just to be quiet and just to be there. And, and don't play these games of trying to explain God to suffering people. It's like Ron Dunn said. He said, if I hear one more person tell a parent who has lost a baby, well, God must have needed another angel in heaven. He said, I think I'll throw up. Why do we feel like we have to explain suffering? We can't even fully explain the suffering that Christ went through to provide our salvation. Why is it that we feel like we always have to have an answer? Sometimes the good answer is, I don't know. Let's just pray and ask God to show us. Or let's pray and trust God in the middle of it. And so let me give you five predictable ways we respond and none of them are really good responses. Number one, there must be a reason you are sick. There just must be a reason. You know, you've either sinned or you've done something wrong or, or your, your great, 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 great parents did something wrong and there's a curse on you and it's a generational thing. Let me just give you the Greek word for that. That's hogwash. Listen, God disciplines his children, but he does not punish them. You are not punished for what your great-great-grandfather did. There may be consequences that affect your life, but God's not holding something from 100 years ago over your head. That's not the way God works. There are consequences from what happened 100 years ago, maybe. But God disciplines us, but he doesn't punish us. Do you know the difference between discipline and punishment? There is a difference. I can discipline my children or I can punish them. God disciplines his children and sometimes we just have to explain there's got to be a reason. That's what Job's three friends did. They sat down with Job and they tried to explain all the reasons why Job was suffering and there wasn't one of the reasons that they gave that was the right one. Listen, just because you think you know the reason somebody's suffering doesn't mean you know God's reason. Job's friends had God in a box had him all figured out and they tried to explain why Job was suffering and Job wasn't suffering for any of those reasons. Second thing that happens is there are cheerleaders of denial. They'll come by and see and it's, oh man, it's been bad. Oh, let's just, let's just not talk about that. Let's just only talk about the positive. You just want to take those people and throw a bedpan at them. Let's just, only let's just focus on the positive. Let's not focus on the negative. Don't worry about what anybody said. Don't worry about the doctors. Don't worry. Let's just be positive in this situation. Hey, 
You don't need that. You need to be in the Word. You need to see what God says and listen to that more, but you don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Number three, and this one's a dangerous one. Oh, you need to turn on channel so-and-so and watch so-and-so and call so-and-so and pray with so-and-so. If you could watch him, if you could pray with him, if you could call him, then you could get something done about your suffering. As if some frail human can do more for you than the Holy Spirit of God. As if some television preacher, of which I are one, <laughs> unfortunately, but as if somebody who talks to you on television or who wrote a book has more access to God than you do. They don't. If you're saved, you have access to the throne of God. And they have no more access to God than you do. Now, it doesn't hurt you to get everybody you can praying for you. Listen, if you're suffering, get everybody you can to pray for you. But I'm going to tell you, they cannot do more for you than God's Holy Spirit can do for you. You get in the Word and let the Holy Spirit of God tell you what you need to know. Number four, just praise it away. Just praise it away. We sing a little song, oh, just amazing what praising can do. And sometimes praise works, but I tell you, it didn't take away Saul's problem. He, he, his mood lifted when he listened to David sing the Psalms, but the minute David was gone, Saul would go back into the pit. You see, you just can't go through the motions of praising it away. Praise has to be something that God puts on the inside, not just something you just lip out with a few words and a few songs that you might have learned. And then there's the last one. God has chosen you to share in the sufferings of Christ. Now that's typically a preacher one. God has chosen you to share in the sufferings of Christ. Listen, folks, don't give typical answers. Just love people and be available. Don't try to answer all their problems. Don't try to explain all their sufferings. Just love them and be available to them. Now Paul talks about his suffering, and he describes it as a thorn. The, the word thorn can also be translated a stake or a nail. It is something that can impale the skin. And Paul says, this thorn was given to me, literally, for his flesh. This is obviously some kind of physical thing that Paul is going through. And it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. The word torment there means to strike a blow with a fist for the purpose of shaming or humiliating someone. Satan wanted to use it to shame and humiliate Paul. And so Paul was maybe shamed, humiliated by what was going on in his life, and he wanted God to take it away from him. God said, no, I'm not going to do that. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, we have people who try to tell us what Paul's thorn is. I've heard preachers preach sermons, and they say, let me tell you, Paul's thorn was he, he couldn't see well and he needed glasses. Now, that's not worth taking up Holy Script for. You go to an eye doctor for that, but you don't have to take up Holy Script to, to try to say that the guy just had a hard time seeing. I don't think a man who had been shipwrecked and isolated and left for dead and stoned and beaten with lashes would have said, this thorn in my flesh was I didn't quite have 20-20 vision. Some people say it was a sexual problem. Can I tell you what Paul's thorn was? I can't, because I don't know, and neither do you. 
That's why God didn't specify it, because then those who say, oh, well, I have that problem, so this is what, what God's word is for me, but God left it blank so you can fill in your thorns. You see, Paul wasn't specific about it, and we shouldn't be specific about it. The issue is it was given to him a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now let's talk about some principles quickly for overcoming suffering. First of all, it's okay to ask questions. Now folks, I, I am not a fan of preaching that says don't ever ask God a question. Hey, if he's my father, I can ask him a question. I could ask my dad questions. If he's my loving heavenly father, then I can go ask him a question. This is, it is not wrong for you to ask God why. The only thing that's wrong is if you stay there. If you just stay at why, you're in trouble. Paul asked God why. God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? Look at verse 7. Two times he says to keep me from exalting myself. Okay, Paul, you want to know? I'll tell you. Got a little pride here. I want to make sure we keep under control. And there are three kinds of pride. First of all is the pride of face. The pride of face. Have you ever noticed how, how caught up we are in our culture about how we look? I mean, do you know how many billions of dollars are spent on makeup and, and, and lipstick and hair color and clothes and, and it, just so we, we look good? We, we have an image that we want to keep up. Now, it's like an old preacher of mine used to say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. That's okay. I mean, none of us really want to come up with, you know, bedhead and, and all those kind of things. Now, Generation X wants to come that way. They, God knows they need to take a shower. But, uh, but you know, they're, they're, but, you know we, we just get so proud of looks, and, and our magazine covers are filled with how people look, and everything is about image. In fact, we're so concerned about the pride of face, we elect politicians by how they look, not by what their character is. They look presidential. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I don't give a rip if somebody looks the most unpresidential in the world. I just want him to keep his pants on. Pride of face, pride of race, pride of race. As if I had anything to, be, to do with being born white. I didn't have anything to do with that. I wasn't there at the moment of conception until the moment of conception. I didn't have anything to do with it. And you see, that was the problem with the Jews. The Jews said, you have to become like us. All of you who are not Jews, you have to go through all the law and all the ceremony, and you have to be like us. And when you're like us, then you can be accepted by God. One of the reasons why our mission work around the world has not been as successful as it could be is we have gone and tried to Americanize cultures instead of taking cultures where they were and letting them be what God let them be. We've culturized Christianity. It's like the little lady said in the mission meeting one time, we don't need to send Bibles to the heathen. They can't read. They need napkins and doilies to learn manners. As if learning manners is what the gospel's all about. 
pride of face, pride of race, pride of grace. You say, well, what is that about? Well, it's when you become proud of something God's done in you or with you or for you. And you begin to convince yourself that you must be one of God's favorites and that God's got a special deal for it with you and you begin to evaluate others and you say, you know, after all that God's done for me, I'm sure a lot better than a lot of these other people around here. That's pride of grace. You've forgotten that everything you are is by the grace of God. That there's no reason to exalt yourself. I'll tell you why Billy Graham's a great man. Because he's never forgotten that he was a tow-headed kid out of North Carolina that nobody thought would ever amount to anything. He's a humble man, and that's why God uses him. The pride of grace. He can pick up the phone and call anybody in the world, but he doesn't talk about it because of grace. He understands he's a sinner saved by grace. Paul had this incredible revelation. We don't know what it was, but it was unbelievable. And God said, now, Paul, I've shown you so much that I'm going to have to give you something to keep you humble. And so he began to ask questions. It's not wrong to ask why. It's wrong to stay there. But here's the key. You do not need reasons. You need the Lord. And you don't need explanations. You need promises. You know, and you just think about it. If God had gone down to Joseph or to Job and explained their situation, do you think it would have changed it any? I mean, some of us get explanations. You know, why am I feeling so bad? Why is this? Why is it? Okay, here's the explanation. But it doesn't change the situation, does it? You don't need an explanation. You need grace to get through the moment. So it's okay to ask questions. Number two, it's important that you accept that there is mystery in suffering. We view life from a limited perspective. We don't see it all. We can't unravel all the mysteries of what God is doing. And, and Paul was a man who had gone through all these horrible experiences, but this one got to him. You don't ever see him praying, Now, Lord, I've been in three shipwrecks. I don't want to go any, on any more carnival cruises. Now, Lord, you know, I've been stoned and left for dead. I don't want to go to any cities that don't have rocks. You know, I just want to go where it's all nice and green. You don't see Paul praying to get out of any other situation except this one. He does not pray, Lord, I'm in prison, and you need to get me out of prison. He always accepted his circumstances, except this one time, this one got to him. And there was a mystery to it. And he couldn't understand it, so he began to pray and ask God, why am I going through this? Can I tell you something? Going through trials doesn't make God any less loving, and it doesn't make God any less God. But there is a mystery to our suffering. You don't know why all these things seem to happen. You, you hear sometimes somebody may may preach a sermon or you'll read a book and it says, you know, boy, if you just love God with all your heart, you just serve him with all your heart, man, you'll be able to overcome, you'll be able to conquer, you'll be able to do this, you'll be able to do that. And you say, well, that's not happening to me. That's because they forgot to read Hebrews eleven thirty six, and others who are beaten and sawn in two, killed, men of whom the world was not worthy. 
Don't just read half-truths when you read the Bible. Yes, God delivered the three Hebrew children, but John the Baptist lost his head. Was John the Baptist any less in the eyes of God than the three Hebrew children in the fire? Absolutely not. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was the greatest man ever born of woman. And yet he lost his head. Well, there must have been sin in John the Baptist. There had to be a reason. I'll tell you why. He loved God. He was in a situation. It happened. That's all we know. Herod was a nut. We live in a fallen world. We live with an unredeemed creation, and we have to live with the fact that suffering comes. Faith does not come with an immunity clause. Just because you have faith in God doesn't mean you have immunity. Number three, that means that faith is its own reward. Faith is its own reward. Some people think, well, if, you know, if I have faith, then I get bonus points. Some folks approach the Christian life with this kind of mentality. If, if serving God doesn't give me an edge on pagans, why should I serve him? I mean, if I don't get a break, you know, if I don't get a ministerial discount, if I don't get, you know, if, if being a Christian doesn't give me an edge in life, why should I be one? Truth of the matter is, you have problems that non-Christians don't have. Because now you are in a warfare, not for your soul, but for your testimony. You're in a warfare now, not for whether you end up in heaven or hell. But when you became a Christian, you entered into a warfare over how effective your testimony and your witness would be for the glory of God, or either be used by Satan as, as a mark against the kingdom of God. How do we respond? Well, Paul says in verse 9, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. It's kind of like the Lord said, now Paul, we've had this discussion before, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. You just accept the fact that my grace is sufficient for you. You see, it's not about being stoic. The captain of the Titanic as he realized that the ship was going down, went to some of the key members of his crew, and he said, be British. Keep that stiff upper lip. Be British. And sometimes we think that what faith does, it gives us the ability to just keep a stiff upper lip. That's not faith. That's willpower. Faith is realizing that I am at the mercy of the grace of that I am desperately in need for God's intervention and God's grace. And Paul prays and he says, Most gladly will I boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, if you pass the test of faith, then you'll find the rest of faith. There's a resting that comes and resting in God and resting in his word and resting in his promises not in solutions, not in always getting the answer, not in healing, not in getting out of the situation, but as you walk through the test of faith, you find the rest of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. Why? Because he passed the test. He passed the test. In Hebrews 11, all those that are listed in Hebrews 11 passed the test. And so there's a great inheritance for them. Faith is its own reward. Number four, the power to overcome comes from God alone. Notice that Paul says 
his powers perfected in weakness. Some of us, even when we're suffering, are too strong for God to be able to work in our lives. We've got it figured out. We know who to call. We we know who to contact to try to help us out. We, We know who will make us feel better about ourselves. But the power to overcome comes from only God alone. And one of the things God has to help us understand in a country where we think life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is one of the Beatitudes, when it's not, we have to realize that God did not save us to make us happy. God saved us to make us holy. God is not, first of all, concerned about happiness You're going to have that for all eternity. God is concerned about conforming you into the image of Christ, and that's about holiness. And do you realize that most of the things that make you happy don't make you holy? Oh, if I get that, I'd be so happy. It doesn't do anything to make you more like Jesus. Oh, if I could have that, if I could just get this, if I could just just do this, oh, I'd be so happy. Most of the things that make us happy don't contribute to our holiness. God's desire is for us to be holy. Now look again at what Paul does. He reaches the the acceptance of God's answer in verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Look at the last part of verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Vance Havner was a man who meant a great deal to me, impacted my life as much as anyone ever has. And in the early 1970s, his wife, Sarah, entered the hospital for six months. She had a very mysterious disease that brought incredible pain to her. One of the things that happened as she was ebbing away and her life was leaving her, she wrote a note to Vance and she said, there are just some things I can't tell you until you know there's a real sense in which we live with the great until there are some things that have happened in your life that you'll never be able to explain or know the reason why until you see Jesus there's a mystery to our suffering there's a mystery to our life there are things that we don't know why these things happen. There are some times when we don't, it's not just that something's happening, is why is it all happening at one time? You know, just, you know, can I get a breather? Can I have a seventh inning stretch? You know, can, can we just have a break here for a few moments? And it just keeps piling on and piling on and you just wonder, you know, when's it going to end? One of the books that Dr. Havner wrote after his wife's death is a book called Hope Thou in God, and it's based on the three times when that phrase appears in Psalm 42, verse 5, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5. Three times in one page these verses appear, and so I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs of what Dr. Havner said. As he was going through this time, his, his doctor had told him he needed to take a break. He had been sitting at the hospital for weeks, He needed to go out and preach for a week just to get away, and this is what he wrote. In the motel room, I wearily set down my bags and prepared for a week's stay. I had left a sick wife in the hospital. 
I was following my doctor's advice to get away for a few days after weeks of watching by our bedside. I knew it would be a difficult week with myself in one place and my heart in another. I glanced to the table where a Gideon Bible lay open. I do not attach undue significance to such things, but sometimes the old book has opened as though by design just to meet the need of that day. It does not happen that one finds the same verse three times on one page, but he says, Why art thou so downcast, O my soul? Hope thou in God. The psalmist was at a record low. His heart panted after God. His tears had been his meat day and night. His enemies taunted him, asking, Where is your God? He remembered the great days when he had been with the multitude in God's house, praising and rejoicing. But look at him now. It's like Paul dropping from the third heaven to his thorn in the flesh. Have you ever known days when you remember that great revival you had been in, where you had thought that you could never again feel like this? Where is that joy, and why is your soul cast down and disquieted? Think of David and Jeremiah, Paul in his low days, and John the Baptist in prison. That ought to help. We are humans. We're making our way through a world as changeable as the weather, with, every ne- with the very next hour unpredictable, shadow and sunlight, heartbreak and hallelujahs, all mixed with no rhyme or reason as far as we can see. The day that breaks in glory may end in grief. The vacation trip that began in glee may end in a funeral parlor by the night. One thing is certain, if the soul takes the psalmist's advice and hopes in God, I shall yet praise him. For the moment we rebel and almost resent the suggestion, how can I ever praise God again after this? We grow bitter and some pitying soul who has never been there recites all the cliches and platitudes. But it does work. I thought I could never be happy again making my lonely way without my companion. I do not understand the why of it all. That waits for heaven. But faith does not wait for explanation to begin praising. Faith does not wait to understand. We have his word. In the meantime, what we're, what are we to do? Sob and sigh until we die? We have control over that. We can worry or not worry. It is now a different kind of joy, sometimes mixed with tears, but once you get to know what I mean, you understand. Meanwhile, we may live through weeks and months when feelings fail and nerves go on the rampage, but we hope in God even when it seems almost hypocritical. It is not. It is faith at its best. For one day we will reach that yet when praise rings its joy bells in the soul. Some days are not easy, and you may want to lay this down in disgust, but it works. The lowest ebb can be the turn of the tide. There's a way on when you've reached wit's end. Would you stand with me and pray, please? Father, we come to you, and some of us try to hide our thorns and our tears. Father, I pray that today we could turn to you and find 
there is the all-sufficient grace of Christ. Lord, as David said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Lord, in suffering and in pain and adversity, we don't need a solution as much as we need a sovereign Lord who is sufficient for all of our needs. And so, Lord God, I ask you to move among these people through these pews and into homes who watch by television. And, Father, that you would minister grace to hurting people. Father, I ask you if there's someone here today that is angry at you or resentful with you and have never trusted you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they grew up in a bad home. Maybe something happened early in their life and they've never believed in a loving God. I pray that today they would find you. Lord, for those who may have been in a situation where nobody seemed to care about their hurt and their pain and their need. I pray that if they are needing a church that can pray for them and support them, that this is where you've led them. That they would allow us to be a shoulder that they can cry on and a place that they can go to, a refuge for the suffering. And Lord, if today at this altar we need to come and just kneel before you and pour our hearts out, and ask questions. Whether we get the answer we want, Lord, I pray that we will know that your grace is sufficient for every need. The choir is going to sing the words of that familiar chorus. And our staff members are going to be here at the front. And if there is a public decision that you need to make today, I would encourage you to be in a spirit of prayer and an attitude of prayer, but if there's something that you need to do publicly, a profession of faith or becoming a member of this church family, or just to come and to kneel at this altar, then I'd encourage you to do it as the choir sings. You come. glad that you have joined us for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. That's the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you would like a videotape of our worship celebration, kindly enclose $10 with your order. Or if you would like an audio cassette of our pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your complete name, address, and telephone number. And ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to visit with us here at Sherwood. And we hope that you'll join us again next week at this time for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia.